Hey there, I'm Jessica Rosenworcel, a commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission, and this is a very special live episode of Broadband Conversations. Now, if you know the podcast, then you know this is a podcast where we bring women together to talk about their big ideas. And that's what we did a couple of weeks ago. I had the pleasure of talking to Congresswoman Sharice Davids and Abby Finkenauer, who are two new members of Congress who sit on the Small Business Committee. You'll hear in this episode how they've each broken some glass ceilings and how they're each making history. But we also covered a lot of ground, everything from why connectivity matters in the digital age to how women get access to capital and how student loan debt can affect that. You'll also see that the 1990s movie Hackers gets a shout out. So I hope you enjoy listening to this live episode as much as I did hosting it. Welcome to the wing. We are so excited to be here, to get to see this space, and to be in front of an audience full of women. Um, So we started this podcast about a year ago because we felt like we should do something to amplify the voices of women in technology and media and innovation and We are so excited to do this today. It is our first time doing this live. And and you're our first audience. And it's even better because we have some really, really dynamic women today. But first, just to the extent you don't know, my name is Jessica Rosenworcel. I am a commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission. And I'm the only woman serving at the Federal Communications Commission. I'm the only one there who voted to oppose the rollback of net neutrality. But I'm pretty convinced I'm not the only woman who thinks women deserve a bigger space in technology. And that if the future is all about being connected, I just want to see more women in more places. And so we started this podcast, again, to amplify their voices. And today, we have these awesome, awesome congresswomen. I can't believe that. They're so exciting. This new class of women that are on Capitol Hill are just changing the game. And we've got here today Congresswoman Sharice Davids. and Abby Finkenauer. You can take whichever one you want. I know. Um, I feel like we have to appreciate the millennial pink you're wearing, Congresswoman. Yeah, feels very place appropriate, you know? Millennial pink. So we're gonna kick things off, get them started, and I wanna start by not introducing you, but asking you to give a little backstory, how you got to where you are today. All right, I guess I'll start, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up in a town, so first of all, um, my, the district that I represent is Iowa 1. So that is northeastern Iowa, um, it's 20 counties, it's about the fourth of the state of Iowa, and the town that I grew up in, um, actually this was called Cheryl, it has more cows than people, um, oh, I even see Isabel here. Oh my goodness, it's so great to see some of our folks from even the office. Good to see you. Um, anyway, I uh, get really excited when I see Iowans in the crowd. 
Um, but so again, I grew up in Cheryl, was a town with more cows than people, um, and I grew up in a family that, you know, on Saturday nights we would all get together and hang out um, with my grandfather, who was a Democrat and a firefighter, my uncle, who was a Republican and a lawyer, and. Um, we'd all have dinner together, and after dinner, it would be the three of us sitting around the kitchen table talking about what was going on in the world. And I was a 10-year-old that would ask, that asked my parents for Newsweek. So I knew oftentimes what was happening and was a big part of those conversations. So I learned two really important lessons during that time. One was that even though I was a young girl, I had every right at the seat of the table as the grown men. And second was that even though we would disagree, and we would actually, quite a bit, uh, we could still hug each other, say love you and can't wait to see you next week. And I remember thinking that that's how public policy and discussion should be. And so then I ended up being actually a page in the US House when I was 16, graduated high school early, was a page then um, for the Speaker of the Iowa House in 2007. That's when Democrats actually had complete control of the state of Iowa. Um, we had the Governor's Mansion State House, State Senate, saw groundbreaking legislation that year, um, one of which was when we added sexual orientation to the Iowa Civil Rights Act. And uh, yeah, it, it was essentially the piece of legislation that led to Iowa being one of the first in the nation to legalize same-sex marriage. And I was 18 and got to see that. And I remember thinking to myself that, oh, okay, this government thing, this policy thing, this is where you can fight for justice and this is where you can make an impact on your community. And I knew I needed to be around that, but I had no idea I was ever going to run. Um, after that, I actually ended up working for Vice President Joe Biden on his 2007 campaign. Um, obviously, the presidential campaign back then didn't work out so well for him, but he ended up being VP and that worked out well. So um, that was an exciting time. And then after that, I went to Drake and then was a legislative assistant in the Iowa House for a couple of years. Um, after that, I ended up all of a sudden looking at a state house seat where I grew up around and I was 25 at the time, and the guy who had held that state house seat was somebody who um, actually held it the year I was born. And he was leaving to run for Congress, actually the congressional seat I sit in now. Um, and, but he, he didn't win the congressional seat, and um, so a, a Republican won that time. I, had, I ended up winning the state house seat. I was in the state house for four years, or for actually, it was the beginning of my third year. And I remember kind of looking around and thinking, um, this is beginning of 2017, that what I was seeing in our state and in our country just wasn't how we treat people, and we're better than this. And I decided to run for Congress, um, ended up winning that seat, and now I'm happy to sit with uh, um, Congresswoman Davis on a lot of our committees like TNI and uh, small business. I just want to point out to you, you're one of the youngest ever congresswoman elected to Congress. Is that yeah, right? I was known for the first couple months as the other 29-year-old. Um, I'm 30 now, so um, and I will take all the years I can get. And also um, happen to be one of the first women ever elected to Congress from the state of Iowa, myself and Cindy Axing. And yeah. uh, joined by another first. I know, so. I know. She's, I mean, this right here is one of the first women from who's a Native American elected to Congress. So there is a whole lot of first up here. So give us more details. So, well, I'm Sharice Davids. I represent the Kansas 3rd Congressional District, which is the Kansas City metro area. Um, 
And let's see. I was a twinkle in my mom's eye. No, just kidding. Um, so, so I was raised by a single mom who served in the Army for 20 years. And um, that's how a person who's Ho-Chunk, a tribe in Wisconsin, ends up in Kansas. Uh, she retired while she was stationed at Fort Leavenworth, not in Leavenworth. Um, and, you know, she, like, she did all the, all the things that a strong woman does. She raised three kids. She worked really hard. She did um, a ton of stuff to try to make sure that I was able to thrive and make mistakes and have autonomy. And um, so, you know, I give all, all the credit to, to my mom for working real hard to make sure that I was able to, to do what I'm doing today and all the other things that I've done, because I've done a lot of different things. Um, so I'm a first-generation college student. It took me four years to get an associate's degree at um, Johnson County Community College, which is in the district that I uh, now represent. Four years later, I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, and then, um, and then managed to get into Cornell for law school. And Cornell folks. A lot of snaps here. Yeah. And then, um, you know, that was, the, that actually going to Cornell was the first time that I saw like true socioeconomic privilege in my life. Uh, and what blew my mind was that I had, didn't even realize that I had not seen socioeconomic privilege in my life. Um, it was the first time I met people who came from families that could afford to pay the tuition at Cornell Law School, which was very expensive. Great school, very expensive tuition, you know, and I didn't begrudge anybody that, but, but it really, like, just, like, I couldn't conceptualize what it would be like if my mom could afford to pay for my tuition and my living expenses and my wisdom teeth, which I also had to take care of. It's just part of my student loans now. Um, so, so when I got done at Cornell, it was the first time also that I had the chance to focus on uh, academics. Before that, all the eight years that it took me to get, my, get through my associates and my bachelor's degree, I worked the, um, the whole time. I, did, I started a, a small business, which I'm, I, we can, I, I, will, I would like to talk about it actually. Um, I started a small car dealership which means that I was a used car salesperson. <laughs> and then and now a lawyer, and now <laughs> I'm a member of Congress. So I don't know if I'm getting better or if I'm, <laughs> I know, I think things are better. I, look, the, things are better. Um, so, so when I got done at law school, I, came, I went back home to Kansas. I got a job at a, a large law firm, but one that had a Kansas City office. I was doing mergers and acquisitions and financings, like clearly on the path to like changing the world, right? Um, but I, I realized pretty quickly that that was not what I, like how I was gonna feel like I was making a difference. Um, but I got the chance to work on some tribal level financing and I had this epiphany about how economic development should, um, should be working in native communities and so um, eventually I ended up living and working on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation which is in South Dakota and um, it was, it was like a, a, a really um, 
interesting experience for a, lot of, for a lot of different reasons, but one of the things I realized because I had to work with the federal government so much was that nobody knows how the federal government works. And I'm not talking about native communities. I mean like n people don't know how the federal government works across the board in all kinds of communities. And so um, it made me want to be a White House fellow. Um, a couple of times I've made the mistake of saying, and then I decided to be a White House fellow. It, it doesn't work that way. Like thousands of people apply and I, um, I used to say stuff, which I think women do a lot, like, oh, I slipped through the cracks and, or I managed to get into Cornell. I, I was so lucky, right? I, yeah, Everyone I always got, says, I'm so lucky. And, and As if hard work didn't play a role, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was both lucky and I worked, my, I worked hard. And, you know, you're front of a FCC commissioner. We do stuff with that language on the yeah. And as Megan Rapinoe said, I'm just you saying. deserve it. I'm just saying, um, yes. But, but one, of the, one of the reasons that I think that I was selected is because um, I, I talked a lot about how we need different people in the room when policy is being created. And the White House Fellows Program gave gives people an opportunity to be at the highest levels of the federal government because you spend a year with a cabinet level official. So I was selected to serve at the end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the current administration. I saw firsthand the difference that literally one voice in a room full of people can make if it's, if it's a different experience. And it, that came in lots of different forms. Sometimes it was that you know, n nobody in the room was from the Midwest or had never lived in a rural area or um, the number of people that I was working with who were, couldn't, couldn't conceptualize it the other way around that like people can't afford to buy things. Um, that was like, it, it just blew my mind how different we could make the conversation with, with just a few different questions, sparking people to think about things in a different way than they had before. and. When I got done with the fellowship, I went back home to Kansas and looked around and saw a couple of things. One, the representative that I replaced was not doing a good job, which is why I replaced him. But the other thing I saw was that um, there were no women in the race to replace the representative that we had, and I just found that to be unacceptable. Of course, I did like the thing that was gonna get me here, which was I started trying to get other people to run. Uh, I called a few different women, I was calling, I was like, hey, you know, I think you'd be great, like jump in the race and I will, like I'll, I've never helped on a campaign before, but I'll be there for you. Um, and then I realized like, wait a minute, if I'm asking the question, who's gonna do something, then I probably need to think about how I can be part of the solution to that. Um, so. You know, I'm a lawyer, I've got federal experience. There's all these different reasons that make me uh, more, just as qualified or more qualified than any of the other five men that were in the race at the time. So I got in the race, Kansas did a great job this year. Uh, I, I got elected. It's amazing to be able to say that we sent one of the first two Native American women to Congress, the first out member of the LGBTQ community to represent Kansas. Um, and then we also elected this year the first two out. Um, Susan Ruiz and Brandon Woodard are part of the LGBTQ community and they're serving in the Kansas State House now. And then we elected Laura, Go Laura Kelly as our governor. Um, she beat Chris Kobach. She beat Chris Kobach. <laughs> um, and so 
you know, I, I think that so many of us, we were, like, I mean, we were sitting back there talking about what is, what is this like? And I think it is still surreal to imagine that we were part of this history-making class, but that it's like, we're really literally just like this big of a part of that. You know, my name was on all these signs, but really it was the tons of people who were knocking on doors and making phone calls and doing all of the really, I mean, there were people who were treating it like it was a full-time job showing up to our office to volunteer, to canvas, to make phone calls. And, um, you know, we got to be a part of that. It's, it's pretty amazing. God, I love that. That's, it's so much first right up here. It's so inspiring. And also just the idea that there are problems out there in the world and we're not going to wait for other people to solve them. Now, so I'm going to switch gears and move towards technology, but one of our big problems in the United States is figuring out how to bring everyone into the digital age. And you both come from communities that are rural in parts. They're really at greatest risk of being left behind. And at the FCC, we always talk about the millions and millions of households who have no broadband access. But when we talk about it in Washington, that's one thing. And I'm wondering what it looks like on the ground in Iowa in your district and in Kansas in your district. Yeah, so I am the chairwoman on the Small Business Subcommittee of Rural Development, Agriculture, Trade, and Entrepreneurship. So all of those show up in a really big way in Iowa, especially right now. And we've been having a lot of conversations with folks in rural Iowa in particular um, you know, about the idea that in Iowa, I mean, we've got to figure out a couple of things, um, but one of, one of which is how do we get people uh, to stop leaving Iowa and also how do we get them to want to come back home? And a big part of that is being able to come back home, um, start small businesses in the small communities where they grew up, um, and be able to thrive. I mean, right now, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe we're losing, is it seven or $70 billion or $70 million a year because of uh, the lack of connectivity in certain areas in our country. Um, and we've got to do a heck of a lot better. Um, and that's very specifically in my district. I, you know, I've talked to farmers who rely on precision ag, some of which are even going to libraries um, to be able to, to get up to date of what, what they need to be following or um, you know, what's happening down the next week or um, it, it's, it's huge. And so these are things that we have to be dealing with. And um, again, we've heard it all over the district and happy to talk about it more later as well. Yeah, you know, you mentioned precision agriculture. And when we think about broadband and connectivity, we think about some dudes in hoodies somewhere who are coding. We don't realize the ability to take that connectivity and bring it to rural America and how it can really change the economy. You know, by making us more efficient with scarce resources, like how we water the soil, how much nitrogen we put in it. And there is so much that this can change in rural communities, and we're gonna figure out how to get it there. It's interesting because um, our, the third district in Kansas has uh, Wyandotte County, which has Kansas City, Kansas, which is its own rich, I mean, most people are actually thinking of Kansas City, Missouri when they think of Kansas City. But uh, Kansas City, Kansas has its own like unique rich history um, uh, as a city and it's, it, you know, so we have kind of an, an urban core in, um, in the third district. And then 
Johnson County is the suburbs. Uh, so it's the suburbs of, um, of Kansas City. It's if you went to, um, I'm not gonna name any other cities because no city compares, but, um, or no suburbs compare, I guess. Uh, but you know, I mean, it's your kind of standard suburbs. Uh, uh, the, the outskirts of Johnson County and Wyandotte County both start to ha look, a, look pretty rural and maybe what people might be picturing when they think of Kansas. And then we've got a little piece of Miami County where it really starts to, that's where we're starting to see the farmers and, um, and that sort of thing, which, which means that our district has the opportunity, I think, to kind of bridge that. We often talk about rural broadband and we talk about um, uh, the urban needs in, in cities that have, you know, I mean, there's tons of places where it's a, it's a densely populated city it's an urban area, but that's not, that doesn't mean that everybody there has access to the internet. It doesn't mean that um, everybody has um, access to, to broadband either in schools, workplaces, um, sometimes even the libraries are struggling. And so um, I think that, that one of the things we have an opportunity to do is make sure that, that we're thinking as comprehensively as possible about the connection between the rural broadband opportunities and the suburban and urban broadband opportunities. Um, one of the things that I, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't uh, talk about this a little bit is, is that um, during my time in, uh, in South Dakota, which was rural, um, very rural, I mean, I was like 90 minutes from Walmart and I had not really ever That's thought as of as good of a measure of rural as any, really. I had not really ever thought of myself as like a person who goes to Walmart a whole bunch, but I found myself thinking like, there's gotta be something I gotta get. Cause <laughs> I was so far away that I just was like pens or something. So, um, nope. Um, but yeah, so in that area, there were tons of people where if we had better broadband access would have 911 access and would have and this is so it's it is as much about the uh, economic opportunities for for a lot of communities as it is about literally like saving lives in other communities and so that's one of the things that I think I have felt very encouraged by when I got here is that people aren't talking about broadband and internet access anymore as if it's a luxury, um, a luxury. it is part of our infrastructure and should be thought of as such and I think that's like that is something that I was I felt really good about because there were when when I was living out in South Dakota and and um, even before that when I was doing economic development work when I was in, in Kansas City people weren't thinking about it in those terms people were talking about it as like oh well why do like oh that'd be great if they had access to the internet and it's like that's not where we're at anymore. And, and for Congress to, to know that is like very significant, so. Absolutely. Now, uh, Congresswoman Finkauer, I know that you serve on the Rural Broadband Task Force. So tell me what that's all about. Yeah, we're actively trying to figure out, you know, how do we make sure that it doesn't matter where you live in this country, that you're able to have connectivity and something that's reliable. And so, um, you know, making sure that we're coming up with proposals to have the right data. I mean, 
that's one of the biggest, if you follow this at all Absolutely. when it comes to broadband, it's, it's how data is collected right now. It, it's not necessarily accurate. We've got a town actually specifically in my district. It's called Brandon. It's a small town. Um, and they right now are trying to apply for grants uh, to, to get connectivity, but aren't uh, qualifying for it because there is one house in the block that has it. And so now it, it looks as though the entire town does. And it, that shouldn't be that way. And so we've got work to do on that end to make sure that we have correct maps here so that we know where to start. Um, and that, again, is just, it's, it's the crux of the problem and something that Democrats and Republicans can figure out ways to get together on. Oh I mean, my gosh, I co-sign yeah. all of that. It's so foundational. We're never gonna manage a problem if we don't measure it accurately. And, you know, it's one of those issues too, I feel like there's consensus on both sides of the aisle that we have to fix this. So I have this optimism that we're gonna find a way. One of the, um, so actually, um, <clears throat> speaking, of, speaking of making sure that we have um, access and that it's accurate, one of the things that I had a conversation just recently with some folks about is, um, especially in some of the more rural parts, so like I was just talking to, the, um, to some folks out in Spring Hill, which is um, like ten tending toward the more rural part of the, of the district and, and Gardner and, and in, in those places with the census coming up and wanting to make sure that you know, if people are going to be able to access the the internet to answer census questions, how like making sure that that we've got uh, broadband availability in those areas is going to be huge for making sure Absolutely. that states that you know w we don't know what the population we don't truly know what the population gains or losses are going to look like in all the different states, and if we aren't really focusing on getting accurate data with the census, then like there are plenty of communities that will be, like, that will suffer for it. And so that's one, of, that's one of the other areas that I think when we're thinking about broadband access, we're thinking about economic and, uh, development and how do we start businesses and that sort of thing. And more businesses will start if we have better access to information about how many people live in the community. What does the market look like? Um, yeah, so and that's something, that's right. why I was like flailing my arms around. <laughs> I was like, what about the census? That's okay, it's a podcast. No one can see you flail your arms. Um, she wasn't flailing her arms. Yeah. She, she was the picture of grace. Um, you are both on the Small Business Committee, and you mentioned this earlier. I'd love for you to talk about small business, women, and technology, because yeah. I think those three things should be related. It's huge. Um, so again, getting to chair that Rural Development, Ag, Trade, and Entrepreneurship Subcommittee has actually allowed me to bring a lot of Iowans to Washington, which has been a huge honor because that's a big reason why I ran, was to make sure that Iowans were actually being heard through all of the chaos that can happen here. Um, and luckily, we had somebody come visit in the first couple of months or so. Her name's Afton, and um, she's a young woman entrepreneur in um, State Center, Iowa. And she's somebody who, started a small business selling flowers. She makes these really cool, realistic flowers that she actually sells all across uh, the world. And um, she was able to talk about some of the challenges of starting a business, 
Um, and also some of the things relating to connectivity and how, um, you know, if, if it's not reliable, she, it, she's literally losing dollars. And she's right now able to be in a small town in Iowa, but if we're not able to, again, make sure that this is reliable and connect it, um, you know, that, that raises questions down the line. But then I also talked to her about some of the other barriers that women often face um, starting businesses. Part of it's capital. Um, you know, we, women have um, less access to capital and it's, it's something we've been trying to deal with on the, the committee itself. And then um, also when it comes to childcare, when it comes to paid leave, when it comes to retirement and you're thinking of starting a small business, when it comes to paying off your student loans, I mean, you name it, there's a lot that we're dealing with here. And so that's one of the biggest honors I think we've had with small businesses, being able to cover a lot of those different topics that people wouldn't have necessarily thought had to do with it at all. Um, but it is a huge barrier for women and something that we're trying to tackle and trying to do it. I know the joke is in the small business committee that we use the word bipartisan. I mean, I don't know, what do you think? 10 times a committee at least sometimes it depends on the only, topic to be only 10 <laughs> yeah only 10 i know um but there are some interesting things we can be doing um, especially with a divided washington right now where you have a democratic house a um, republican senate a republican administration in the white house and trying to figure out what can we actually move forward in the next year and a half and then what are some of the bigger ideas we can actually start having as well that maybe we can't get through the senate but we should be having those conversations and um, again, it, there's, there's a lot to be talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so one of the things, you know, if you come into my office, uh, one of the things that I have kind of sitting on the little like table uh, in my office is um, a report that the Kansas City Fed did. And it's about, um, Small, small businesses and so I always say Kansas City has like entrepreneurship is like baked into the DNA of the place. Um, we have this um, thriving uh, entrepreneurial co community there and ecosystem that we're building and um, this Kansas City Fed report was amazing because it highlighted that um, first of all uh, black women are like the fastest growing demographic in, in small business and entrepreneurship and startups. Um, and in Kansas City, um, in, in the Kansas City area, we have um, like, the high, like one of the highest percentages is first or second in the country. And um, that means that I get to participate and, and learn a ton from um, what is a, a pretty diverse entrepreneurial community there. And um, not that long ago, I got the chance to participate in um, a panel called Women Who Mean Business. And um, Adri Adrian Haynes, who, who started this, the multi, uh, Multicultural Business Council, it, they have meetings all across the um, metro area in Kansas City. She's a, she's a lawyer, she's kind of an all around badass, I'm just gonna say it. Um, I, she, I give you permission. Okay. She's, she, I've got FCC permission. Um, so she, but she, she's constantly bringing together groups of, of, of people to have the conversation about wh why do you think access to capital is so much harder for 
women or women of color or um, like people of color in general. And, and one of the things that um, some of the entrepreneurs that I've had the chance to meet because of the work that uh, Adrian's doing is that what ends up happening is people think of that guy in the hoodie when what they should be thinking about is uh, people like Carlanda McKinney who started, uh, a, a, it's, it's evolving and pivoting into other areas, but when I met her, she was doing a, a personalized, customized bra that, with an app that would scan you, and when she started trying to find funding for this company, she's in rooms, it's only men, and they're like, why would, you, why would you spend a bunch of money on a personalized bra when you could go to Target? And she was like, are you? I'm not trying to get into your personal business. You're married. Um, and she was, and you know, I mean, and she had all these statistics. Like, no, women own 50, on average, women own 15 bras and they use two or something. Everybody's like, mm. And, and they just like could not conceptualize that there would be a market for this kind of product. And she was like, the fact that I'm constantly trying to access capital through the, the usual means, and I'm putting that in quotes because the podcast can't see me, but the, the quote unquote usual means, which is going to a bank, which is going to, um, in some cases, like venture capital, angel investors, that sort of thing, and it's only in the very, it's only very recently that we're starting to see that people are specifically noticing that, hey, there's tons of women with great ideas. There's tons of people from communities that are not the white kid who dropped out of Harvard in a hoodie. And, and I think that what we're seeing on the Small Business Committee is constantly having conversations about what does access to capital look like. And what kind of problems can people who have a diverse set of experiences bring to, especially around technology, whether it's um, new kinds of apps, whether it's recognizing these gaping holes that when you're in a homogenous room of people, it's hard to see those sometimes. And we've had, I mean, the, the very, I think the very first uh, meeting we had was about access to capital. And we were talking with veteran-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, women, veteran-owned businesses. I mean, the, um, the, the work that we get to do on the Small Business Committee is exactly what Abby was talking about, Congresswoman Finknauer, is, is how do we make sure that when we're building out our policy, that we're listening to a wide variety of experiences around, well, well can we stop making it seem like it's a good thing that someone started a business on credit card debt, because that's not a good thing. We treat it as if it's something to be highlighted. And there was a woman who was talking to our committee just last week, or this earlier, geez, what day of the week is it? This week, about how we, we cannot celebrate that. The person, she should have access to every kind of avenue of capital that anybody else does. But instead, people are like, oh, you gotta pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And that's not how we have a thriving economy and a thriving startup community and a thriving entrepreneurial community. It's by making sure that we're, that we're truly providing avenues to access to capital. You know, and it's not just credit card debt, it's student loans in this country. 
Does that come no, up? that's so huge. Yeah. Does that yeah. come up when you talk about um, these issues in small all business? All the time. Yeah. So, um, like Congresswoman Davis, I'm also, I know she wants me to call her. Sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we, I'm, I'm also a first generation college graduate who's still paying off about 20K of student loans. I know, um, comparably, actually, that's not terrible compared to some folks in the country. Sharice is making a funny face right now. How much do you yeah. have? <laughs> um, oh, you went to law school. Yeah, a so lot of that. it is from law school. Yeah. Um, it's... A lot. I'm looking at. No, you don't have like, to. No. But it sounds no, no, like more I'm than 20k. Kidding. Oh so yeah, it's yeah, yeah. So it, it's in my financial disclosures. It's over a hundred thousand dollars. Yes. Oh, oh yes. We were in that article together about being um, the least Forest. wealthy members of Congress. Oh, like, we were also that can, together. It's okay. Yes. Yes. It's okay. Um. <laughs> I consider myself to be um, broke, not poor. Yeah. <laughs> or least wealthy. There we go. Yeah. Um, Anyway, student loan debt, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a huge issue. In fact, actually, um, uh, yesterday I introduced a bill that had to do with um, the colleges that uh, are for-profit universities that have taken advantage of folks, um, specifically in my district. There are 600 people in my district right now um, who have fallen prey to a for-profit university that um, promised a lot and then closed right before graduation for some folks, including one of our veterans that I had actually um, at a press conference on Monday. And he's a guy who, you know, did everything right. He, he kept coming back, saying, doing what he was supposed to do, trying to do it right, and um, was taken advantage of. And that shouldn't be happening. And, and, you know, there's already a rule by the Department of Education that um, those federal student loans then uh, should be canceled and they should be going after then those for-profit universities. And unfortunately, the Trump administration and the um, Betsy DeVos are not going after those, uh, are, are not following through on that Obama era rule right now. So we're trying to codify it to make sure that folks who are taken advantage of are able to get the relief they need. And we were able to ask about this in particular about what does that mean for folks um, who again, try to do it all right and then to have, uh, to, to have that debt taken away when again, you can't give them back their time but they were defrauded and it's wrong. Um, what does that mean? And uh, we had actually veterans testifying in front of our committee who said, you know, you can start and I, you can, you can take that next step starting a business. You can do so much with it. And um, that's stuff that we need to be talking about right now in general, just so that the cost of higher education and you shouldn't, it shouldn't matter which family you were born into or what country or where, what, district you live in, um, it, you know, you should be able to go to college and um, not live for years in debt for it. And that's stuff that we've got to continue to work on and continue to have those conversations because um, there's a lot of work we have to do. And um, there's a lot of ideas out there and I'm glad we're having them because if we don't solve this, and it's going to be this type of Congress where it's Sharice and I sitting here who are first generation college students who are paying off the debt that are, have to be part of that conversation. And in the room, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, one, so we just had a student, we just had a student um, loan debt roundtable in, um, at Johnson County Community College, which is where I graduated from. Um, and I mean, one of the panelists said, uh, I graduated from school with a, a mortgage and no home to show for it. And I just remember when he said it, I was like, whoa. Yeah. 
I mean, I wasn't ready for that truth bomb, you know? And, um, and it's true, like people are graduating from school and it's like the first thing you think about when you graduate and you've reached that milestone, sh the first thing you think about should not be, okay, now what job do I have to find to pay these student loans? And, and too, like so many people are in that, in that spot. And then a bunch of people, I mean, and I, so I, um, I co-signed on, on that bill and the, um, uh, cause I, th I think we have a thousand people in our, in our district who had, um, a similar, at Wright College, which is a for-profit university that closed. And, and, um, the fact that you, that like at random you can have two members with that many people in their districts who have like that same kind of problem where people have been taken advantage of. There's 158,000 right now that are in the entire country who are sitting there qualifying um, for this help and are being ignored. That's why we have that bill. Yeah. So, I mean, so I think that um, being able to being able to sponsor that kind of legislation and even knowing that that kind of problem exists, that comes from the, the new Congress that's here now. Um, and then the only other thing I would say is that uh, one of the things that we have been, and I try to mention every time I get the chance, is that uh, I wanna make sure that we're setting things up in a way that if, if what you wanna do is go to college, awesome. Let's figure out ways to support people in furthering their education. If, if what they're gonna do is go to community college, if what they're gonna do is go to a four-year university, if they're gonna go into a professional trade or whatever, because all of those things are, are vitally important to our society. And you know, a, a liberal arts degree, uh, an engineering degree, a welding, you know, being a, a, a welder, knowing how to build a house, like these things are all vitally important to our society. And I think we have to make sure that we're acknowledging that and that we're um, not, not setting up a system that makes it seem like if you're not going to a four-year degree to get a bachelor's, then you're doing something wrong because I don't believe that's the case. And so many professions right now, whether or not you need that degree, require digital skills. Yeah. I mean, 80% of our jobs right now need some level of facility with digital technology. And so we're gonna have to figure out how to connect all those people in all those places and then provide pathways to whatever it is, whatever opportunity they want. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. One of the things that, um, and I bet you guys have some of this too. I went, so Kansas City, Kansas Community College has um, this um, like amazing technical um, and trades program and we, I went and looked at, so people who are learning how to weld and people who are doing machine work and all kinds of, it, it, is, a, it is very, very technical and it requires, um, it requires a, a skill set that I think that people don't often think about. So I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, the, the technology and the evolution of all of this stuff, it, it's, impacting, it's impacting everything. So I'm glad you said and that. And we also want to make sure that the community of people who create those technologies reflect the diversity of the country. Absolutely. Because there's a huge economy Absolutely. out there that we yep. are missing yep. if we are just allowing most of us to be consumers and only a few of us to be creators. Exactly. So if anyone has any questions, we are gonna take them from you. We've got two first of their kind congresswomen here. So you just raise your hand and let us know.
Otherwise, I'm going to keep going. Oh, there we go. Okay, before you, before you go, I'm going to make you say something, which is, I want to know what the last thing you did on the internet was before you ask this question. Uh, the last thing I did on the internet was I pulled up um, the a bill from Vermont, um, the Promoting Remote Workers and Remote Work Arrangements bill. Um, my parents. Okay, we are so in Washington that it's just about the, <laughs> that is, that is the wonkiest thing you could do. But credit, credit, lots of credit there. Yeah. Um, well, because it's what my question is about. I also tweeted a couple of times. Um, <laughs> so my question for both of you, Congressman, first of all, thank you for representing people who haven't had a voice, um, including people openly who have a lot of debt and who have come from backgrounds that um, don't have everything sort of laid out for them or taken care of for them. Um, Vermont uh, recently passed in 2018 a bill on promoting um, workers moving to the area, you, uh, touting their broadband connectivity and offering grants of up to $10,000 for people who are willing to move to Vermont and telework from the state. Um, they've also been one of the highest moved to states in the last year or two. So I was wondering if anything is in the works like that in Iowa or in Kansas. And then also one side note is that it doesn't benefit current residents. So my uh, stepfather who's been teleworking for years from Vermont won't benefit and my parents are selling their house right now because Vermont is not economically viable anymore. How can you protect local jobs as well when you're encouraging people to move to the area? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, that's really interesting and something to absolutely, you know, look into and study more. Um, one of the things we're doing, and again, I said this at the beginning, um, with being chair of World Development Ag Trade, or so I'm just called, it's the rate committee, and if I get next year, I told them I want to add the word growth to it and just call it the great subcommittee instead. <laughs> um, it's, a mouth, it's a mouthful. So anyway, uh, my big purpose on that and, and honestly almost every day that I'm here again is figuring out ways to how do you keep Iowans in Iowa and how do you bring them back home and so one of the things that I've been talking about um, actually quite a bit in the district and then also with my team trying to figure out how do we do this right um, when it comes to student loan debt and in, in, in particular it's something I worked with on in the state house and had a bill on but unfortunately um, you know, it, it, I, we did not have control of the state house, um, so we at least were able to have the conversation, which was great. Um, but I remember thinking at the time, wow, it'd be great to have somebody on the federal level I could talk to about this. So um, now here we are, and it's a it's an idea where um, when we're talking about student loan debt forgiveness, um, one thing we know is that. Um, you know, if you keep people in a certain area for, or you, you incentivize them to live in the area for over eight years, this is what Vermont, I'm sure, modeled this after, they stay, they buy houses, they raise their family. And so how can we reflect that in Iowa? And um, there's, you know, the thought is, if we're gonna talk about debt forgiveness, let's do it in places where we need folks to move. Um, and so uh, looking at areas where populations have remained stagnant or we've lost populations over the years um, and start there. And, and that's obviously Iowa would benefit um, and that's exciting, but we also, to that, for that to be even something that's viable to get folks to wanna move back to Iowa, to be able to, we've gotta figure out our connectivity issue. And so um, there's a lot that goes into this and that's one of the ideas right now that we're talking about, just trying to be creative about how do we deal with some of these issues in ways that make sense all across our country. Um, and that's interesting about Vermont and something we could 
you know, watch and, and check out more too. Thank you. The first thing that I'd say that we did to encourage people to move to Kansas is um, made sure that Chris Kobach wasn't our governor. So we elected Lord Kelly. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, we elected Lord Kelly. No. Um, so I, I think that's a really interesting, um, an interesting question in part because uh, with the census coming up, I, I, I'm really curious to see what's happening across Kansas. Uh, so because I represent the third district, I often am like, just so everyone knows, I'm not, I don't have in-depth knowledge about the in entirety of the state. Um, the area that I'm, the area that I represent is actually growing very quickly. Um, some of the areas in Johnson County are growing at 100 or 150 people per month, which is a, which is a lot. <clears throat> and um, that, the little bit that I do know is that it is having a massive impact in our rural areas on, um, you know, limited resources. There are fewer people there to make use of, you name it, whether it's the, the schools, the shops, the, um, and so what ends up, so what's ending up happening is the district that I'm in is our population is swelling and then the rest of the state is seeing a, a reduction. Um, and you know, there are, there are a, a lot of things that I've been supportive of. Of course, broadband access is one of them. Um, but also trying to make sure that in whatever ways I can that I'm supporting our agricultural communities, that I'm supporting, um, you know, people often think about, like there's actually a, a lot of home health, home health um, folks that are like small businesses that are, are popping up around Kansas, telehealth stuff that's popping up around Kansas. And people are trying to get creative and figure out ways to offer services um, one of the things that happens when you're in a rural community is you're, you're kind of forced to do a lot of coalition building because you don't want to be reinventing the wheel and you also don't want to be um, duplicating uh, services. And so we, like, as the person who represents the area of Kansas that's growing very quickly, I'm, I'm constantly doing outreach and trying to figure out ways, like, okay, so what can I do and what policies can I support? And this is where I have the opportunity to do some bipartisan work that will benefit the entire state. Um, so I think that's, so it just in terms of like actual approaches, um, I haven't seen, and I think a lot of that stuff's on the state level and I haven't seen us doing a ton of, um, uh, and, but it remains to be seen what Laura Kelly is gonna do as our governor. Um, the, I think one of the things we could do that would make people wanna live in Kansas is, um, uh, expand Medicaid and <laughs> so we're uh, we're working on that and um, at the federal level we can incentivize that so I what? am gonna ask okay go final ahead. questions I asked you what um, what was the last thing you did on the internet but now I want to ask these two digital natives what was the first thing they did on the internet it oh. sounded like this That's impressive. That is. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, I did that, and then <laughs> I, I think I was, maybe, was I, 
eight or so, I went to, and this is really funny, and, and I can't believe I remember this, but I went to whitehousekids.org. <laughs> And she like, uh, knew where she was going yeah, early. The Clintons were in the White House, and there was a thing where you could write to their cat socks. And do you remember this? Yeah, I wrote to socks um, on the website, and then socks sent me a picture in the mail with his uh, little paw on there and a nice little note. So that was one of, honestly one of my first memories of the internet was going to whitehousekids.org. That is awesome. Uh, wow. Um, I was thinking earlier, like I'm a full 10 years older than the youngest people in Congress and I'm pretty young. I mean, I think. I'm pretty young. Um, that, so that's, that's funny. I, um, I, so I went to, I went to DeVry for a little bit because I thought I wanted to do computers. I don't know what I thought, I don't know what that meant, but I, I was like, I was 19 and the dot, dot com stuff was really going on. Um, but I remember when, um, I was in high school, so that movie Hackers, I think it was Hackers, yeah. Um, you were like, I wanna be them. Yeah, I mean, there was that and then, um, but was Hackers the one with, oh my goodness, what's her? Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. I do not remember this. Well, yeah. there's probably a number of different reasons why I remember okay. and you don't. <laughs> um, so, um, so I remember, I remember watching that movie and being like, oh, and we had a, com we had a computer and we had the AOL thing and, and I was like constantly trying to figure out like, I just, I remember like wanting to figure out like how does this thing work and and like like getting somehow managing to get and I messed up my cousin's computer because I was like somehow managed to like you know get into the actual like DOS part of it and um, so I was I don't know how old I was at that point but and then and then I mostly just got into like the chat rooms and was you know and like I was a messenger. soccer and tennis like yeah yeah. Uh -huh. So. It's oh, like the history of the internet right yeah. here. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now I want to just go one a little bit higher and be a little lofty, which is appropriate for a congresswoman. What do you want the future of the internet and digital life to look like? Again, I think this goes back to what I've kept talking about, where it shouldn't matter where you live in this country. You should be able to have access. And, and again not just connectivity, but reliability. And that's the other thing, you know, just making sure that, um, you know, we can, we can make the opportunities are everywhere in this country and not just in our bigger cities and making sure that no part of our country is ignored or no communities are ignored. It, it's, it's essentially what you were, what, what you were saying. Um, I, the thing that I think, and not just with technology and the internet, but all of our infrastructure is that in the future what I would like to see is an infrastructure system, an internet system, a technology um, uh, environment that has been designed as intentionally to be equitable and inclusive as, as the intention to make it not that. 
That's what I want to see in the future. I want a, a system that's designed to be equitable and inclusive. And so I don't have a specific thing that I want to happen, but if that's, if that's the intention behind the design of the system, then all of us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will be much better off, our society will be better off. That's, that's the thing that I like. And, and part of why I feel like it's worth it to do this kind of job, uh, why I think it's worth it to be part of the federal government, even when sometimes that's really hard. Um, because we have the opportunity to build that intention into all of these systems, because for a long time it wasn't there. Um, for a long time, people, uh, people like me, people like a lot of the folks in this room, we were not part of that intention, and now we get to be. That is so exciting. Now, I want everyone to thank them for coming today. How, how exciting is it to have women like this represent us in Congress? I am thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that you're doing what you do. And public service and life on Capitol Hill, I am sure, is not easy. So thank you. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, for, having thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.